Welcome to episode 47 of the 3M Fear podcast. In 1978, five friends from Yuba City, California went to watch a basketball game at Chico State. These guys had challenges like mild disabilities or mental health conditions, but they were all excited for the game. After that game, something strange happened. No one made it back home. Their loved ones got worried and started looking for them. Days passed and their car, a 1969 Mercury Montego owned by one of the friends, was discovered way off course in a forest. It was fine, not broken down or anything, but it was just there, left out in the snow. The mystery deepened because even though the car was okay, the friends were nowhere to be found. It was like they vanished into thin air. Investigators couldn't figure out why they'd leave that car behind when it seemed like they could have easily moved it. Months went by and when the snow finally melted in June, four of the five friends were found near a trailer camp in the forest, about 20 miles from the car. It was a tragic ending and to this day, no one knows what happened to them or who did this to them. The case has been called the Matthias Group Incident, the Yuba County 5 case, and the American Dyatlov Pass Incident. Now, if you don't know, Dyatlov Pass refers to the unsolved deaths of nine hikers in the northern Ural Mountains in the Soviet Union, now Russia, between February 1st and 2nd in 1959. Hello and welcome to the 3AM Fear podcast. I'm Nikita Ferrao, mystery and thriller author. On this podcast, I talk about real crimes and real people. Due to the graphic nature of some of this content, listener discretion is advised. You can find the episode show notes on my website 3amfear.com. Let's get started. The Yuba County 5 were a group of young men from Yuba City, California in the United States. These men had mild intellectual disabilities or psychiatric conditions. The five men included were Jack Madruga, age 30, Jack Hewitt, age 24, Theodore or Ted Weir, age 32, William, also known as Bill Sterling, age 29, and finally Gary Dale Mathias age 25 The five men disappeared on February 24, 1978 in Oroville Plumeth National Forest, California. Now these five men were connected by a program called the Gateway Projects in Yuba County. The goal of this program was to help individuals who were suffering with mental disabilities or mental health issues to help in their life. 
Now it is important to note that the media had blown this case way out of proportion. According to the media, these men were mentally challenged and so they couldn't do anything. But in real life, that was far from the truth. Yes, they did have problems. Yes, they were struggling. But together, they were an equally strong group. Their mental health condition may have been exaggerated a lot because they were not that weak as people were saying. They had jobs. They had responsibilities. In fact, Jack Madruga also had a car of his own and he was the one who would drive the group around. Now let's talk about each individual in the group. Jack Jack Hewitt, the youngest of the group at 24 years old, faced a lot of challenges with mental disabilities. He was the only person in the group who could not read. On top of that, he also had speech issues and struggled to hold down a regular job. Despite all these difficulties, he was not completely incapable. He worked on his father's farm and enjoyed riding his dirt bike around the property. Now, school was difficult for Jack and his mother estimated that his IQ would be around 40. However, everyone who knew him described him as a kind and quiet person who was quite easy to be around. Despite all his struggles, he had his own strengths and he was a really, really good guy. Ted Ted Weir was the oldest in the group at 32 years old. He was described as a very friendly person, similar to Jack. He was also mentally handicapped, but unlike Jack, he managed to hold down a job for a while at a local grocery store as a bag boy. Now, one thing to be noted about Ted was that he lacked common sense. Now, he never got his driving license and there was this one situation that's been talked about a lot where Jack was once in the car with his friends and he told them that he didn't understand why they needed to stop at a stop sign. His family handled all his financials because of his condition. In a peculiar incident, he once spent $100 on pencils for no apparent reason. It's not like there were any special pencils or there was any special offer or there was something going on that he needed so badly to buy pencils. He just bought pencils for $100. There was also this one incident when Ted's house caught on fire. His parents tried to wake him up to get him out of that burning house. But when Ted woke up, he just looked at the ceiling. It was on fire. And Ted, instead of rushing out of the house, said that he needed to go back to sleep because he didn't want to appear sleepy the next day. It is all these small incidents put together that get you a picture of how Ted actually was. He was a nice, kind, loving person, of course, but he was not someone that you could completely trust on, especially when it came to dangerous situations. Ted was afraid of a lot of things like the dark, the woods, and fire, especially after the house incident. However, despite his fears, he was incredibly protective of Jack. Wherever Jack went, Ted would follow. The two of them were inseparable. Now, out of the entire group, Ted and Jack were the only two who had learning disabilities. Jack Madruga, 
Jack Medruga was age 30 at the time of their disappearance. He was one of the two guys in the group who had a driver's license, but he was the only one who was allowed to drive a car. He had a 1969 Mercury Montego. In school, Jack struggled a bit, but once he finished and got a job, things seemed to look up. He joined the army and spent a good number of years driving trucks for the military. After leaving the military, he found steady work in Yuba County. He was so reliable and trustworthy that he even helped his mother with the rent. From what's been shared, it seems like Jack didn't have any specific mental health condition. He may have sort of a social disorder. He had problem mingling with people. By nature, he was a very shy person. But this is the 60s we are talking about. At that time, even a small condition such as being shy was labeled as a mental health issue and that's probably why jack was labeled as someone who was dealing with mental health problems jack had a special bond with his car he adored it he loved taking care of it he would always clean it and he did not like it if someone littered it or didn't take enough good care of it his closest friend in the group was bill sterling Bill Sterling, who was 29 years old, had known Jack Madruga since they were kids. He was quite the opposite of Jack in terms of personality. While Jack was very shy, Bill was described as a very energetic and outgoing person. Their friendship seemed to thrive in contrast. Jack was being quiet and kind, while Sterling was loud and outgoing. They were the perfect combination. People who knew him mentioned that Bill was actually pretty smart but he had some issues such as lack of effort rather than being mentally handicapped despite this he did manage to graduate from high school he was deeply religious a devout christian who was passionate about the bible and his church community on weekends he often visited local hospitals to read the bible to the sick and elderly This shows you exactly what kind of a person he was. Now keep all these details in mind especially as the story goes on. Because if you read the news everywhere it's going to be written mental health issue patients or mentally handicapped or mentally challenged people, mentally challenged patients, but no one tells you how capable these people are. They were capable and they did live a normal life in the society. It's just that this story was blown way out of proportion. Now let's get to the last member of the group. This member is very important because this member is the only one whose body was never recovered. Gary. Gary Mathias joined the group a year before his disappearance. Age 25 years old, Gary stood out from the other boys as he was never classified as slow or having any form of mental disability. Instead, Gary was said to have paranoid schizophrenia, similar to Jack Medruga. Now, like Jack, Gary also had military experience, but his time in the military was troubled by violence and drug use. Even after leaving the military, he had several encounters with the law. He had a history of violence and public outbursts. But once he joined the Gateway Projects, he got his medication. He started to be a much better person. He thrived. Now Gary's background is quite complex 
because it's closely tied to the case. He joined the group just one year before. Now, even though Gary had been prescribed his medication, he would sometimes, or more than once, forget to take his medication, and this would lead to violent outbursts. He eventually began to take his medication regularly, and prior to his disappearance, he was said to be working with his stepfather, who owned a landscaping business. Despite joining the group much later on, everyone who knew them said that Gary had deep affection for the boys. He was highly protective of them and even took on the role of their leader. Gary was intellectually advantaged because comparatively he was the smarter person in the group. These five friends did everything together, from bowling on the weekends to staying over at each other's houses. They were also a part of the Gateway Project's basketball team, the Gateway Gators. The boys' basketball coach would often talk highly about them. The coach would also describe Gary as being smart, sometimes spacey, maybe because of his medication, but overall a good person. The close-knit nature of this group is very important, especially for the story. On February 25th, 1978, the Gateway Gators were all excited for an upcoming tournament hosted by the Special Olympics. The prize? An all-expenses-paid trip to Los Angeles for an entire weekend. They had been eagerly waiting for this event for all week. They were all hyped up for the tournament, ready to go. Now, in the spirit of getting ready for their own competition, the five friends decided to attend a UC Davis basketball game the night before their own tournament. So on February 24th, they decided to make the 50-mile trip north from Yuba City to California State University at Chico for the UC Davis game. The game was expected to last until around 10 p.m. With this tournament looming the next day, they were all serious. They knew that they wanted to see this game but at the same time, they knew that the next day, they had their own game. So they got their uniforms ready, got them ironed, kept them ready. They knew that they were going to go watch this game, come back home, go to sleep quickly so that the next morning they could wake up, wear their uniforms and go and play their game. Jack Madruga picked up his friends for the short trip to the UC Davis basketball game. Some parents, like Bill Sterlings, were not sure if they wanted to send their son out. The weather was very cold and they even advised their sons to wear a jacket. But they all said that they would be just going for this game. They would watch the game and then come right back home. So there wasn't any need for a jacket as such. Little did they know that this would be the last time they would see their children alive. This is what we know about what happened to the boys soon after the game got over. Shortly after the game got over, they headed to a nearby store called Bears Market to grab some snacks for their drive home. The clerk remembered them coming at around 10pm and they did so because they were about to close up and suddenly these boys appeared and they wanted to buy things. It caused a little bit of irritation. That's how the clerk remembered these five. They bought a cherry pie, a lemon pie, one Snickers bar, one Marathon bar, two Pepsis, a quart and a half of milk. After this, the boys were supposed to make their way back home. 
but unfortunately they never did now whatever happened to them after this remains uncertain there are a lot of theories lot of ideas on what could have happened or who may have done it but unfortunately there is no proper answer to what happened to them the mother of the two men ted and bill knew that something had happened it's like that sudden feeling you get as if something is wrong monita bill's mother said that she woke up around 2 am wondering where her son was and ted's mother imogen woke up suddenly around 5 am and she saw that ted's bed was not slept in they started contacting the other parents and each one realized that their children had not made it home now remember these boys often slept in each other's houses so it's quite possible that initially at that night the parents may not have thought much maybe they thought that the boys were tired and so they slept in another house they never would have wondered that something had happened to the boys now once the phone call exchange happened they realized that the boys were not home now even though they were panicking they decided to give it some time maybe the boys got tired and they were stuck outside somewhere and they would come back maybe they slept in the car or maybe they stayed somewhere they would come back now remember the next day that is the morning where the parents are all searching for their children this is the morning where the boys game is supposed to take place so wherever the boys were there is no way that they would miss this game their life depended on it the whole reason why they went out the previous night was so that they could hype themselves up for this game so they had to be back home the parents waited the game came and went the boys never did and that's when they realized that something had gone terribly wrong there was in no way that the boys would ever miss this game now lucky for them the police seemed to take the situation quite seriously and immediately they started looking out for the boys while searching the first thing that they found was surveillance footage from the convenience store the same place where they had brought their snacks and drinks they checked the time they got it but they had no idea where the boys went after that as hours passed they didn't return home the families grew worried Without cell phones in the 1978 there was no way to reach out there was no way to know what happened nobody knew where they were or what happened to them on february 28th after 4 days of uncertainty there was a huge breakthrough jack's car was found but it was found in a strange and remote place a 2.5 hour drive from chico on a road that locals described was out of the way when police searched the place they found no evidence of foul play the car didn't appear to be stuck it was just there any one of the boys could have just gotten out of the car helped lift it up a little bit and the car would have easily started there was no obvious damage to the car there seemed to be gas in the car there was no reason to why this car was here Now remember even if you think that a normal boy could not lift this car these boys were trained they were professional basketball players just one of them was more than enough to push this car the road was extremely windy with snow and icy mountains 
and unlike any usual road in the area it was dark and isolated making it even scarier the car was discovered on a gravel road east of oruvel in plumat national park now despite all these dangerous conditions the road was now being closed due to snow i'll give you an idea of where the car was found and why it's so shocking that the car was found there because i can't show you a picture close your eyes and let's assume the road for the boys to reach home they would have to go from point a to point b which is a straight road there is no need for a detour there is no need for taking a round there is no need to go anywhere else all they had to go was from a to b but where their car was found was on point c which was in a totally opposite direction and that too it wasn't just a normal straight road they had to literally drag the car on a dirt filled road why would they do that when they could have easily gone from the place that they were in to their house which is a direct clean straight road why would they leave that and go in an opposite direction which is almost 2.5 hours away and then get stuck there on a dirt filled road the road that they were stuck in it's not like the road was closed but because it was a very snowy place people knew that that was not a place that you could go and stay especially at night that was not a place that you have to go it was well known to the locals and these boys were the locals on february 28th a ranger from the plumat national park contacted the yuba county police informing them that he saw this vehicle on orwell quincy road now even though this person is reporting this on february 28th the ranger had seen this car on february 25th but he thought that maybe the driver of this car had gotten down had gone walking and maybe went some sightseeing and then would come back get into the car and leave or if the car had broken down and the owner was nowhere to be seen he thought that maybe he got a ride with someone else and then would come back and the car would be towed the next day he didn't think much about it not until when he returned much later that is not on the same day but much later and he saw that this car was still there now it isn't uncommon for people to leave their vehicles there sometimes they would just arrange for someone to come and pick their car up so he didn't think much about it as it was a forest area the ranger immediately didn't connect this vehicle to any concerns it was several days later when the police were searching for the owner of this vehicle when he saw the news about it and then decided to go to the police and tell them what he had seen now let's talk in miles the route between chico where the uc davis basketball game took place and yuba city their hometown is a straightforward ride as i said you go from point a to point b that's it but the orwell quincy road where the car was discovered lies 70 miles in the opposite direction and at 4 4400 feet beyond the mountain snow line now for the boys to reach this place they would have to first of all drive in the wrong direction for 70 miles 
after that they would have to drag this car up a slope until they reached the location where they were found again these boys were no strangers to this place they knew the roads this was their own hometown they knew where to drive and where not to drive so why would they be stuck there there was no way that they were lost now another important thing that came up was that the boys actually hated the plumat national park or at least some of them did ted's father said that ted hated the outdoors he hated going outside he hated nature he just hated leaving his house and bill sterling's father would say that he tried several times to take his son out for fishing but bill was just not interested so if these boys hated being out why would they want to go on an adventure trip at night now that the car was discovered they saw that surprisingly it had some gas left so there was running fuel the car was not stuck or even if it was a little bit here and there the boys could have easily pushed it so there was nothing that was tying the car there nothing that had stopped them from driving off inside the car there was a map of california but the keys were missing some sources say that the back window was rolled down which is strange considering that it was freezing outside in conditions like these people tend to close their windows that keep them open the car was stuck and its tires were spinning helplessly now remember what i had said about madruga in the beginning he loved his car more than anything he loved keeping it clean he loved taking care of it he loved taking it on drives now when his car was recovered it was not at all clean the driver side window was rolled down and when the police looked inside they saw empty soda cans candy wrappers it was just a huge mess and that was definitely not how madruga saw his car as this still didn't make any sense why would they drive so far first of all why would they not take their jackets with them why would they drive so far why was the car so dirty why would they just abandon it it just didn't make any sense now of the food that they had bought from the place they had eaten everything they bought except for half of a marathon bar investigators found this whole situation bizarre the car was in a remote freezing location it just didn't make any sense some speculated that the men were chased or forced to drive there but there was no damage to the car it didn't seem like they were running from someone or someone was trying to attack them it just looked too normal the discovery of the vehicle provided search parties with a general area to focus with however the first day of the search was met with severe ice storm that posed extreme dangers the intensity of the snow nearly resulted in the death of two people who were trying to look out for them one suffered from heart attack while other experienced severe hypothermia due to this condition the police had to call off the search at least until it was safe enough for them to search the winter storm continued for several days and the police couldn't do anything all they could do was sit and wait by the time the snow had stopped 3 days had passed any trace that could have been there around the vehicle 
was all gone all because of the snow the finding of the vehicle is the only thing that we know for 100% is real that night search teams were sent in the area where the car was found despite using multiple search groups and rescue dogs they couldn't find anything due to the freezing cold and heavy snow they had to call off the search again later on a 55 year old man named joseph came forward with a very important tip he claimed to have been in the same area that night planning to bring his wife and daughter later on however his car got stuck and while he was trying to fix it he had a heart attack stranded and worried he thought that he may never be able to survive joseph returned to his car unable to continue working on it he turned on the heat and tried to stay calm this was not the first time that he got his heart attack and he knew that if he waited for some time this pain would go away shockingly he was parked only 150 feet away from where jack's car would be found now joseph's story is a little confusing because in one version he says that while he was in the car at around 11:30 pm he saw these two sets of headlights coming up behind him one was a car and the other was a pickup truck he got out of the car to stop them and ask for help the two cars stopped about 20 feet in front of him the passengers got together in one of the cars and then just left it didn't quite make sense now in another version joseph mentioned that around 11 pm he heard whistling sounds by the road when he got out of the car hoping for help he saw a group of five men a lady and a baby he claimed that he had seen two vehicles one of which was a pickup truck near where he was stranded despite calling out for help the group of people nearby seemed to ignore him eventually their lights went out joseph got back into the car feeling helpless now why joseph has this two variations of the story is because while all of this was happening he was in the middle of a heart attack so he was finding it very hard to remember what exactly happened he initially said that he saw this woman with a baby while later he said that he was not sure if this was actually a woman and a baby as joseph's car ran out of gas he decided to walk to the cabin about 8 miles away during his walk he passed by jack's car which was empty and abandoned in the middle of the road now remember the police were looking for these boys right from the start so everyone in the town knew what was happening they knew that they were looking out for a car and they were looking out for five boys so a lot of people started giving in tips saying that they had seen the car here or they had seen the boys here with the car and so it was quite difficult to know who was telling the truth and who wasn't but out of all of them joseph's story seemed to match the most now along with people there were also a lot of psychics who offered their help one psychic claimed that the boys were kidnapped and taken to either arizona or nevada another said that there was a specific house in oroville where they believed that the men were murdered the family spent days searching for this house but the house didn't exist this was a very disappointing and very frustrating experience for them 
months went by without any trace of these men or any significant breakthroughs it wasn't until 3 months later in early june when the snow started to melt and the first body was found on june 4th a group of motorcyclists arrived to inspect the previously uncovered trailer top the mountain as they approached they saw that one of the windows at the front of the trailer had been shattered and there was this disgusting smell that was coming from it inside near one of the bedroom doors they found a pair of tennis shoes and then they saw a human body lying on one of the beds wrapped in blankets afraid at what they had just found they immediately reported their findings to the park service and the police the condition of the body that they found was distressing it was wrapped completely in blankets it looked almost mummified the blankets even covered the head when the blankets were removed later they found a faceless corpse the facial features having rotted away the body was in a state of severe decay with feet notably affected the socks and shoes had been removed and it was evident that before death the feet had suffered frostbite and gangrene resulting in the loss of five toes the clothing that was on the body described one person in the group ted weir now here's the strange part ted had broken into the trailer that was fine but he hadn't used a locker nearby that was filled with enough food to last all five friends for almost a year there were also matches fuel and a propane tank in a shelter nearby they could have easily used all these things to keep themselves warm now with one year i don't mean that one year in total i mean that they could have easily divided the food and could have survived much longer they could have survived months with this food and also there was enough supplies to keep them warm they could have been saved but from whatever the police could found it seemed like these boys or at least ted who was now currently found had not touched any of these things it seemed like he just waited in the trailer without using any of the supplies available until he passed away besides ted's body his personal belongings like a ring with his name engraved his wallet a gold necklace were all placed nearby strangely there was also a gold waltham watch that was found but no one recognized it it wasn't ted's ted seemed to have suffered terribly before his death with severe signs of starvation frostbite on his feet and indication of possible torture for about 8 to 13 weeks ted was alive for almost 8 to 13 weeks before he died the trailer was located 19 miles from where jack's car was found adding to the mystery of how did ted end up here the families were shocked and horrified at the condition in which ted was found investigators were baffled how did ted end up here especially considering the snow outside how did he walk up till here did someone drive him here how the trailer was locked with just a broken window yuba county lieutenant lance ayers would later say quote all they had to do was turn that gas on and they'd have had gas to the trailer and heat end quote
The discovery raised numerous questions. Firstly, Ted's body was found wrapped in sheets very tightly, and it's impossible that he had done this to himself. Adding to the confusion, the tennis shoes next to the door were identified as belonging to Gary Mathias, not Ted. Ted's own shoes, the brown leather boots that he was last seen wearing, were missing. Additionally, at the site beside the trailer, there were two sheds. One shed had more than a year's supply of food, while the other had various heating supplies like blankets and torches. Some ration packs were used, but not a lot. Most of it was still kept just like that. Now in these rations, there were canned, pre-cooked and prepared meals that were issued to the US military. Now out of these, the men were said to have consumed 36 meals. So there was a lot more for them to have. Why didn't they eat all this? Now one more thing which was quite shocking was that one of the sea ration cans had been opened with an army P38 can opener. Now this detail mattered because out of the five men only two of them had military training, Jack and Gary. So which one of them opened these cans? Now 11 and a half miles up the mountain from where the car was found the bodies of Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling would be found lying next to each other their bodies were badly damaged due to weather and Madruga's body was partially eaten by coyotes or some sort of an animal Bill Sterling was nothing but bones at this point Now it is estimated that on February 24th whenever the five were traveling up to the cabin either Bill or Jack began to succumb to hypothermia Now when you're suffering from hypothermia you kind of start to feel tired your body starts to give up and you feel and you feel as if you're sleepy you're actually not sleepy but you feel as if you're sleepy Sources say this is probably what happened to them they succumbed to hypothermia and they just never woke up It's heartbreaking to think what happened to them. For several months they just lay there beneath the snow while their families desperately searched for them. Approximately 2 miles northeast of the trailer, Jack Hewitt's father, who was part of the search party, stumbled upon his son's jacket beneath a bush. When he reached out to pull it, Jack Hewitt's spine slipped out. There was nothing left of him other than his spine. They eventually got his skull, some bone fragments and some other remainders of his body together. He too had likely succumbed to hypothermia. Next to the site, Jack Hewitt's jeans and shoes were also found. Their condition also suggested that they were removed before his death. This aligns with this phenomenon called paradoxical undressing. where the person feels so cold that they almost feel as if they are feeling hot and they start to remove their clothes Ted Weir's body was sent to autopsy and the coroner said that Ted had been alive for 8 to 13 weeks after the disappearance now you do remember that Gary Mathias's shoes were found with Ted Weir right but Gary Mathias was never found They never found his body. They have no idea where he went. They have no idea what happened to him. They have no idea whether he died with them. The mystery surrounding the Yuba County 5 has led to numerous theories because there's not much evidence to point and prove that this person did it or this is the reason that they died 
they of course died of hypothermia but why would they do that why would they do that to themselves why would they expose themselves to this cold when they could have just driven home now there are so many theories online to what could have happened and if i keep listing we will never finish this episode so i just want to point out to the one and the most popular theory that is put out there one that almost everyone believes may have been the truth which is gary matthias could have been behind this whole thing now gary was said to be the smartest in the group he was the only one who did not have a condition that prevented him from doing anything he of course had some mental health issues but he was still very smart so if there was anybody who could have told this group or convinced this group to move away or to deviate from the path or to go and do something that they wouldn't normally do on their own then it could only be gary if someone was trying to take advantage of the group if someone was trying to do something to the group then gary was the only one who was smart enough to assess the situation and know what to do with it and because gary was never found people believe that he did something to them and ran away but even if gary didn't do anything where was he what happened to him why didn't he ever come back there was even a theory that had something to do with aliens but out of all this four poor boys lost their lives and gary we have no idea if he was innocent and if he also lost his life but unfortunately was never found or if he was actually the culprit and he ran away no one knows what happened to him no one knows what happened to all of them I was reading the crime wire the other day while I was trying to do research for this case and that's where I came about this list of questions that were put up at the end of the article and these are quite valid questions I'm going to read them out as they are I'm quoting the crime wire here and I'm going to read these questions as they are because I've covered most of them in the episode and they make you think what actually happened to the boys So here are the questions from the crime wire. How did they end up on an unfamiliar mountain road deep in a remote forest? Why did they abandon a perfectly operable vehicle? Who were the people seen by Joseph on the road the night the boys disappeared? If they were the boys, why did they shut off the headlights or flashlights and go silent when Joseph called them for help? If they weren't the boys, then who were they? Who was that mother and baby that Joseph said that he saw? Why did Ted Bear starve for weeks rather than eat the rations that were available for him? Why did he freeze rather than heat the trailer? What happened to the car keys? And finally, where is Gary Matthias? With this, I will leave this case to you. What do you think? A big thank you to all my fellow listeners who have been listening to all my episodes. Thank you so much. Your listens, your support means a lot. If you love my podcast, if you love the stories that I put out, then please do follow me on whichever podcasting platform you are listening from and please do leave a rating. It will really help me a lot. You can listen to me on other platforms including Spotify, Apple Podcasts and any other podcasting platform. If you are in India you can always listen to my podcast on Gana or Jio Savan. If you love to listen to strange and mysterious stories then follow me on Instagram and YouTube where I put out reels on such stories. 
these are completely different from the ones that i put out on my podcast so do follow me on them if you love travel you can follow me on my travel channels i'll link them also in the description until then stay kind and stay safe out there